Welcome to the Semper Reformator podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to read from the book of Acts and chapter 21 and verse 15. Acts chapter 21 and verse 15. Out in the foyer, I've left a few leftover CDs. If you're not able to get the catechism class online or on your phone, you could pick one up before you go. Um, this week, it's about the subject of why do we call Jesus our Lord? Why do we do that? I think we should insist on it. In the day and age when you hear the BBC talking with great reverence about the Prophet Muhammad, they hardly let the name of Muhammad be passed without calling him the deferential term that the Muslims demand. Why do we call Jesus Lord? We should insist that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, quite frankly, because he owns us. And you know that, don't you? We are not our own. We are bought with a price. He bought us with a price, not with silver or gold or corruptible things, but with his own blood. He redeemed us, and we are his, and we call him Lord because of that. And because we are his, we seek to obey him. So lift the CD if you need to listen to more. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 21 and we're going to read from verse 15. Let us hear God's word. And after those days we took up our carriages, that's simply our, our luggage, our baggage, and we went up to Jerusalem and there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly What things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. And they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, We have four men which have a vow on them, Them take, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, 
and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thy thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe we have written, and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men. And the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, which they saw, which, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Well, we'll pause there. Quite a bit in that. If you weren't here last week, uh, it would be good to listen to last week's online recording. Because last week I did warn you that some of the things that we would see might uh, encourage us to think that Paul was not only a saint, but a sinner. And that, like us, he makes mistakes and errors. And tonight I want to talk to you about pragmatism and Paul's very puzzling pragmatism in particular. You know what pragmatism is, don't you? People will say to you sometimes, well, we must do whatever it takes to get people into the church. We must do whatever it takes to keep the church together. We must do whatever works. It's the message of the liberal churches, isn't it? With their compromise to the prevailing conditions of the modern age. We have to be relevant to the culture. We have to move with the times, haven't we? So a while back, the Methodist Church in England have decided that in their churches, men can marry other men. Women can marry other women. Not just liberal churches that indulge themselves in pragmatism. It's the message of evangelicals too. We have to do something to get people saved. We must be pragmatic, they say, and we must argue that it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as it works. An example of that, way back in the 70s, a very famous Belfast pastor was the subject of a radio debate on BBC Radio Ulster on Sunday Sequence or perhaps the programme that preceded it. His views on the Trinity were held to be unorthodox and the Presbyterian Church had discussed it at their assembly. They debated the matter. And so the BBC brought that pastor and a representative of the Presbyterian Church onto their onto the morning program in order to debate the matter. So this particular Presbyterian minister challenged the pastor on air about his unorthodox 
modalist views on the Trinity. The pastor refused to even discuss theology. When it was put to him that his views on the Trinity were less than correct, his defence was, but look at the numbers that's being saved. His defence was, I don't worry about those sort of things. I just point people to Jesus. I'm not worried about those things. I just want to tell the people that my Lord died for them on the cross. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. But let's not be too worried about it. Let's be pragmatic. Just so long as it works. Just so long as people are coming into the building. Just so long as people are getting saved. Just so long as people are putting their hands up and walking to the front. And we can say that there's 20 people gave their heart to the Lord this week. What does it matter what we believe? That's pragmatism. Now why am I talking about it? Because Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. And he's been welcomed by his friends there. Acts chapter 21 and verse 17. They came to Jerusalem and the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. And all the elders were present. Now remember, Paul's not alone here. Luke is with him, recording this at first hand. Timothy's there too. The representatives of the Gentile churches are all with him and they have been welcomed in Jerusalem and the next day they have a meeting with the church leadership, with James and the elders. No sign of Peter and John at this stage. Presumably they have left Jerusalem and gone to work in gospel labour elsewhere. I want you to see three things in the text. I want you to see a demand for pragmatism. And then secondly, I want you to see the very great danger of pragmatism. And I want you to see how pragmatism was deterred. Look at verse 23. James says to Paul, Do therefore this that we say to thee. Do something. I'm always worried when somebody tells me there's something I have to do. To get people in. Or something like that. See, Paul's meeting with the elders has gone very well. He has given them an account of the work of God among the Gentile nations. And all across the Gentile world, people are coming to Christ. They're believing in the Lord Jesus. And right across Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece and perhaps up into what we call Uh, today Albania there are new churches formed and thriving through the work of the gospel and in Rome and Italy of course as well it was enough to cause the elders to rejoice in God verse 9 when he had saluted them he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry and when they heard it they glorified the Lord they did But there's another matter to be considered. 
and it may have taken the edge slightly off their joy. Because the Jerusalem church is thriving too. It was great to hear Paul talking about all the thousands of sinners who have come to salvation in Christ. But there's thousands and thousands of people now meeting in the Christian church in Jerusalem as well. Literally thousands of new Christians, all of them followers of the Lord Jesus. All of them from a Jewish cultural background. And verse 20 tells us, all of them obeying the laws of Moses. Verse 20, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And there is a problem. You see, there's talk among the Jewish Christians that Paul is telling Jewish people that when they come to Christ, they can dispense with their distinctive Jewishness. He's probably even telling them, according to these people, not to bother circumcising their baby boys. Look at verse 21. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. That's the Mishnah and the Talmud, the laws of the Jews. It laid down that myriad of tiny little regulations to prevent a Jew from breaking the Ten Commandments. That's going to cause a problem. Because Paul's standing there before the elders with an offering from the Gentile churches. Remember? He has been gathering money all around his Gentile connection of churches. Maybe he had taken the hint from James. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, we read when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed, I like the sarcasm there, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we would remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do. James had given them a hint. And Paul has this great desire that this act of love on the part of the Gentiles will prove to the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem that the Gentile believers are their brothers and sisters in the Lord. One single church. But do the Jews want the help? You can imagine their reaction. Paul walks in with this money. And he says to James, I've been collecting for the poor. And I've got this great store of money from all the Gentile churches to give to the poor in Jerusalem. And you can imagine James and the elders. Well, you know, that's very kind of you, Paul. 
to bring us this huge love offering. But you understand, this money's been donated by Gentiles. And for us Jews, Gentiles are, they're just dogs. They're filthy people. And their money is tainted by their culture. And and what's worse than that, you've brought some of them here to Jerusalem in the middle of the feast. Gentiles. So Paul, they think, is telling Jewish Christians to be like Gentiles. And he's actually brought a crowd of those filthy people into Jerusalem. And he's brought with them some of their filthy lucre. And there's no doubt that's going to make some Jewish Christians extremely uncomfortable. What we need is some tact. What we need is some pragmatism, isn't it? So in verse 22... Here's what we read. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do do therefore this that we say unto thee. Here it is. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them. And be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads. And all may know that the, those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Now let's be pragmatic about this. James is talking to Paul. There's four men here who have made a vow. Maybe one of those Nazarite vows. Maybe similar to the one that Paul had made earlier in Corinth. And they've been growing their hair. And now they're going to need to go to the temple. And they're going to have their hair shaved. And they're going to undergo all the rituals and all the ceremonies. And they're going to make all the necessary offerings and the sacrifice. So James suggests, listen Paul... You should demonstrate your cultural sensitivity. You should be relevant. You should pay for them. Be at charges with them. You should go to the temple and you should go through all the rituals of the Jewish law with them and pay for their sacrifices. Now Paul really wanted that offering to be received. After all, he did believe in being Jewish enough to preach in synagogues and Roman enough to befriend the Gentiles and teach them the gospel. Didn't he say to the Corinthians that he would be free from all men? He has made himself servant unto all. He says, unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews unto them that are under the law as under the law. So Paul agreed. I want to point out to you, before we go any further, that James's request to Paul doesn't in any way undermine or conflict with the decisions of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you look at verse 25, James actually quotes the council himself. 
He says, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. They don't have to keep the law. Save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. They don't have to have their children circumcised. So here's a simple thing, Paul. Just be a Jew. Do the Jewish thing. That's the the demand for pragmatism. You know, we have that from the world. We have it from other Christians. Just do it because it will fit with the culture. Let's see the danger of pragmatism. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. F.F. Bruce here suggests that Paul must have been a bit uncomfortable at James's demand. James Montgomery Boyce points out here that Paul's actions were just going a step too far. Look what Paul's going to do. The danger of pragmatism. Pragmatism and the gospel. Look what Paul's going to do. He's going to associate himself with a ritual that many Jews thought would earn them merit in the sight of God. He's going to participate in ceremonies designed for ritual cleansing, which for a Jew was part of their purification before God. A purification that Paul sincerely believed could actually only be obtained through Christ in salvation, by grace, through faith alone. Pointless ceremonies that could never cleanse a man or a woman from their sin. In fact, in Hebrews, when Paul's going to preach to the Hebrews in that great sermon, he's going to talk about these priests who stand daily offering sacrifices that can never, ever wash away the sin. And he's going to contrast that with Jesus, who after one sacrifice sat down with his work completed. And here he is, going to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice for sin that people would look at and say, he's just one of us. He believes that the temple is going to purify him and the rituals of the temple. And he's going to pay for the temple sacrifices. Sacrifices that in the Old Testament have actually been intended to point forward to Christ Sacrifices that have now been fulfilled in full at Calvary in one pragmatic decision intended to preserve the unity of the Jerusalem church, intended to ease the way for Jewish Christians to receive a love offering with a clear conscience. Paul will utterly destroy everything that he said about the gospel. I told you this was different. The gospel of salvation by free grace alone will be undermined and discredited 
and the distinction between grace and works will be destroyed. Pragmatism in the gospel. Pragmatism and personal integrity. Because not only would the gospel be denied in Paul's decision to be pragmatic, but his own personal standing will also be destroyed. Think about his writings. Think about his teachings. Think about his students who have listened to him, who have sat at his feet in the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus and other places. What are they going to think of Paul when word gets back to Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica that Paul has sponsored four men in their Jewish rituals to cleanse their sins, that he's compromised Remember, this is the man who has already, at this point in his life, written to the Galatian Christians and warned them not to go back to Judaism. Listen to what he said. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Paul's walking into the temple with four men about to fulfill a vow and to take the Jewish ritual for to purify them. Pragmatism and hypocrisy. Paul's being a complete hypocrite. Because what he's intending to do at Jerusalem is far, far worse than what Peter did at Antioch. Remember at Antioch, Peter refused to sit down and eat with the Gentile Christians just because Jews were watching. Yet when Peter acted in that manner, Paul publicly rebuked him. In Galatians 2 and 11 to 14, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And what of his own actions at Corinth? At Corinth, he too had taken a vow of thanksgiving. But he hadn't gone to Jerusalem to cut his hair. He got it cut at Sancria. He got it cut in Greece. He hadn't gone to Jerusalem. He hadn't gone through the required temple rituals. They were pointless. And now he's going to do exactly what he hadn't done himself. Hypocrisy. I'm going to... I'm going to have to finish it. I'm just going to say to you that I am not innocent in this. 20 years ago or more, when I was a Elam pastor, people would challenge me about my lack of preaching on uh, 
what they would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, they had four pillars. They talked about the Jesus as Savior and Healer and Baptizer and King. And they talked about that as being the four-square gospel. And eventually in a church, people would say to me, Brother, you never preach in the Holy Ghost. And you see, if I had told them what I actually believed, and remember I'm a cessationist, so if I told them what I actually believed, I'd been instantly sacked. So I had to be pragmatic. And I used to say to people, you know, I don't really care what you call the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, so long as it works. It's my way of getting out of it. I was no better than Paul. So when I stand here tonight and talk about Paul's pragmatism, I'm pointing the finger right at myself. We're not called to be pragmatic. We're called to be faithful to God's word. We're called to teach the whole counsel of God, not to avoid the doctrines that some people might not like. So for a Christian, and especially for church leaders, pragmatism always seems to water down the message of the gospel. It destroys ministries. It wrecks churches. It denies essential doctrines. And basically, it does the devil's work for him. And Paul has walked straight into the trap. And as we saw last week, he did that despite the fact that he was warned by the Holy Spirit over and over again by God himself not to go to Jerusalem. And in his thrandness, he still went. So what's going to happen now? Look at verse 27 to see the determinant of this pragmatism. When the seven days were almost ended, The Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Paul's about to ruin absolutely everything in the interests of being pragmatic. Let's just keep these Jews happy. Let's keep everybody on board. And then something very strange happens in the providence of God, as it often does. The opportunity to ruin his whole life's work and witness is denied him. There's a very strange intervention. Paul's in the temple, in the temple court. He has met the four men. He has taken them up to the temple and he has almost begun the work of the rituals of purification. The seven days of purification are almost up and the sacrifices will be due at the end of the seven days when God intervenes to preserve his church in the strangest way. He'd done the same thing in Corinth, remember when he used the newly installed Roman proconsul of Achaia, a man called Gallio, to punish Paul's Jewish opponents and to establish a precedent that permitted the gospel to be proclaimed openly and without hindrance for a decade or more. And now he does it again. God steps in and he stops it. 
Instead of rescuing Paul from danger, God uses unbelievers to have him arrested. He never got the opportunity to destroy his life, to destroy his witness. At that time at Jerusalem, there were a number of Jews from the area around Ephesus. And Ephesus, you'll remember, had been the scene of a riot. And there were lots of Jews in that town who didn't like Paul. And so they saw him, and they recognized him, and they seized him. And for Paul, the pragmatic decision led to his arrest and to a life-changing event. And it leads to a complete shift in direction, as we'll see over the next few weeks, because Acts changes now. Paul's life and his whole ministry changes. There's no more travelling for Paul. No more new churches. Paul has been removed from his role as the missionary apostle to the Gentiles. He'll not be teaching in any lecture halls anymore. That's all been taken from him. His ministry's not over, but it's different. He'll not be talking to people in their homes. He'll not be catechizing anymore from home to home. From now on, he'll be witnessing for God, but in different areas. He'll be witnessing before Jewish courts and Roman officials and prison guards. And some will come to Christ. And later on, there will be Christians found even in Caesar's household. And that should give us some comfort. Paul, no doubt, did what he did for the best of reasons. I'm sure he was trying to deal very practically with a situation. Sometimes we do that too. We decide practicality is more important than faithfulness to biblical principles. And sometimes that leads to doctrinal confusion or ruination of our witness and even to hypocrisy. And sometimes the Lord himself has to step in to stop us sinners from destroying his work or from giving, or from giving Satan an advantage over us. So there's hope. Paul is not lost. Paul will still be useful in God's kingdom. His public ministry is taken from him. But he will still be a personal witness. And he will still encourage, he will still write encouraging letters to young pastors like Timothy and Titus. And he'll still live for God's glory. But oh my brethren, Let us be careful that the demands of this world compromise and to be pragmatic don't lead us into the same situation. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, 
Please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.